Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi there, I'm Nate Fisher, and I'm your host. This is Timeline Tapes, the podcast brought to you by the YouTube channel Timeline. Our channel is home to a huge collection of world history documentaries, but we understand you might want to enjoy them on the go. So here's where we turn them into podcasts for you to enjoy no matter what you're up to. Today we'll be delving into a 17th century genetic mystery during the Black Death, where one village in England seemed to be completely immune to the disease. How did this one Derbyshire town survive the most fatal pandemic in human history? And how could this mystery case help scientists towards a cure for AIDS today? The presenter for the show is the geneticist Stephen O'Brien, who follows this remarkable genetic journey from Eme, a small village in northern England, to San Francisco. Throughout the Middle Ages, one disease haunted people above all others, the Black Death. Moving with deadly speed, it wiped out whole cities, shattering Europe, killing an incredible 25 million people. Contact with the deadly disease meant certain death, or so it was always believed, until now. In a remote English village, a bizarre story has emerged which has thwarted scientists and historians alike. Here, people managed to resist the deadly plague against all the odds. Why did these people survive when others were dying all around them? Scientist Stephen O'Brien believes he may have cracked the mystery. It's a little bit like a detective story. When you get closer and closer to solving it and finding out what the answer is, you become more and more excited and convinced that there is an answer and that you're going to get to it. And his relentless detective work has revealed the answer to another great medical puzzle. Our chances of surviving the deadliest disease of the 21st century. In the autumn of 1347, 12 Genoese galleys entered the harbor at Messina, Sicily. The ships contained a gruesome cargo. Vile-smelling corpses strewed the deck. The few that were still alive cried out in pain, begging God to forgive them their sins. 
The ships were ordered straight out of the harbor, but it was too late. A killer disease had escaped ashore. Within just 12 months, it would have gutted the heart out of Europe, wiping out one third of the population. Behind the deadly pestilence lay an invisible culprit, the plague bacterium. Carried by fleas lurking in the fur of rats, the deadly bug spread quickly to man. Where the rats went, so did the disease. Along the trade routes of Europe, the Black Death swept relentlessly northwards. By January, it was in Marseille. 60% of the population died. By the spring, it was in Florence. 75% died. Then it hit Paris. Travel stories came back and letters came back about this terrible, cataclysmic illness that was decimating, or decimating, that was um, cutting swathes through the populations of other nations in other locations. And so there was a sense in which um, England, for instance, could watch it approaching them. In September 1348, the first deadly cargo of disease arrived in England. Docking at Southampton, it quickly spread to London. Soon, the ghastly signs of plague erupted across the city. A soaring fever was followed by an outbreak of agonizing black boils in the armpits, neck, and groin, giving the disease its name, the Black Death. If the infection reached the lungs, it turned into pneumonic plague, making it possible for the disease to pass from person to person through the breath. The victim had no hope. Death was inevitable. Today, the bacteria are no less deadly. Dr. Rick Titball at Porton Down is only allowed to handle plague in a specially built isolation unit. The plague bacterium is certainly one of the most dangerous bacteria that we know. And often within two or three days, exposed individuals have died from pneumonic plague. And the other problem is it carries a very high mortality rate. It's almost 100%. Almost everybody who catches pneumonic plague will die. The plague was so infectious and so deadly that medieval England saw it as a punishment from God. But prayer and penance were useless. The plague swept mercilessly on. I think it's really hard for us to get a grip on what it meant for something between 60 and 75% of a locality to die. Medicine in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance was rudimentary. There were no cures for diseases. There were only attempts at warding off illness. So fear of the plague is an absolute fear. If you catch it, you'll die. The plague would continue its deadly visitations on and off for the next 300 years before mysteriously disappearing again. At the height of the epidemic in England, a strategy was devised to attempt to limit the spread of the disease. Quarantine. You would be locked up for 40 days with the rest of your family. 
Watchers would make sure you didn't escape, padlocks would be locked on, and if you needed it, nurses would be provided to, to tend to your cares, to offer the necessaries of human life. And th this meant that the sick and the healthy were enclosed, sometimes in deeply fetid circumstances, for a long time. It was effectively a death sentence. After 40 days of exposure to the deadly pestilence, nobody was expected to come out alive. But what was the fate of those people locked into their plague-ridden homes? Plague historian Justin Champion found clues buried in the London archives, which convinced him that there had in fact been survivors. He compared the plague registers with burial records to see just how many people had actually died from the plague in each household. His findings were to mark a turning point in plague research. Throughout London, he found pockets of resistance. The intriguing thing is, clearly, many, many more people contracted the disease than died. The, the images of um, London at a standstill, grass growing up through cobblestones, shows that, that there is widespread um, illness, if not widespread mortality immediately. So we, we have um, the imponderable problem of many people contracting the disease and a high proportion of them dying, but also people who survived having experienced that disease. If some individuals had survived quarantine, what made them so special that they could resist the world's most infectious and deadly disease? Scientist Dr. Stephen O'Brien was determined to find out. As lab chief at the National Institute of Health in Washington, O'Brien had dedicated himself to answering one question. Why some people were able to resist infectious diseases where others succumbed. The mystery of the Black Death was the ultimate challenge. I think all scientists like to make important discoveries and like to, to learn new things. But I think the ones who, who really make the most critical advances are the ones who can't stand not to understand what happened. In order to investigate the mystery of the plague survivors, Stephen O'Brien needed to find a plague-struck area where there were documented cases of people surviving quarantine. Eventually, O'Brien found what he was looking for, Eam Village in Derbyshire. Eam had a unique and extraordinary story behind it, which made it the perfect place for O'Brien to study. Hidden in the Peak District, away from the main trade routes of England, Eam might have escaped the plague had it not been for a parcel of cloth. In September 1665, when the plague had returned to London with a vengeance, a package arrived in Eam. It was for the village tailor, George Vickers, and contained cloth from a London warehouse. Little did he know as he hung the damp cloth up to dry that the fleas that jumped out carried deadly plague bacteria. In preparing it to, to lay it out, uh, it's probably shaken, and Vickers, the, the, uh, the man who did the job, uh, was bitten and little red marks appeared on his hands and he didn't realize and nobody would have told him in those days that the red marks on his wrists were, were fatal and that in a short time he'd be dead. It was not long before other deaths followed and the villagers realized their fate. 
the plague had come to Eam. The death toll began to soar. Though, of course, there's no medical help in the village. There's no apothecary, there's no nursing uh, assistance. The people were totally bewildered. And the only person, of course, who really they could turn to was their rector. And uh, they called on him for help. The village rector was William Montpesson. He saw at once that Eam was doomed. But there was still a chance to prevent the plague from spreading to the neighboring areas. He ordered an immediate quarantine of the village. Nobody was to be allowed in or out. And when they first heard this, the shock must have been terrible because they would realize immediately that if they accepted quarantine, cut themselves off, if they didn't die of plague, they were likely to die of hunger. Now, this was solved by the Earl of Devonshire, of course, who lived in Chatsworth House just a few miles away. And um, he agreed to supply as much food as it was possible. It became one of the most dramatic stories of the plague years. The food was delivered to a desolate spot on the boundary of the village marked by a stone, in the hope that by isolating Eam, the surrounding villages would be spared. The condemned villagers left what coins they had, washed in vinegar, to pay for it. And the irony of that is, that of course, that some of these poor devils that died, died with more food in their bellies than they'd ever had in so-called happier times. The weeks passed, then months. It was assumed that eventually everyone in Eam would die. September 1666, one year after the plague had come to Eam, the first outsiders dared to venture into the village. What would they find after the year of horror? To their amazement, they were met by survivors. They told extraordinary tales of miraculous recovery, which have passed into village folklore. Joan Plant is descended from one of those survivors. She was brought up feeling that her village was special. She met Stephen O'Brien and filled him in on the village history. One tale tells of the village gravedigger, who in his haste to bury the dead, dragged a plague-stricken man from his bed while he was still warm. Presumably didn't know the difference between unconscious and dead, I don't know, but he dragged this chap down the stairs, and halfway down the stairs, this bloke revived, and when he got to the bottom, asked for a drink. Um, and supposedly, you know, he, he was okay, and he, he survives. Even more notorious was the case of Joan's ancestor, Margaret Blackwell. In the final stages of the disease, Margaret staggered to the kitchen, overcome by desperate thirst, just hours after she had been left for dead by her brother, Francis. She was quite delirious and didn't know where she was. Saw this milk jug on the table and uh, just drank this, what she thought was milk, and it was fat, bacon fat. Uh, and she survived the plague. She was a survivor. And so that's quite a tale in itself, in that maybe the bacon fat cured her. I don't know, but that, that's one of the stories. Were these fanciful tales or historical fact? 
how many people really did survive the plague in Eme. Local historian John Clifford was determined to find out. So we put it to the test and we analysed the parish register, which starts in 1630, and we listed everybody who appeared to be alive in 1665. We deleted those who died in the plague, and then we searched the register for evidence of survivors. And we went as far as 1725, which was 60 years after the plague, and we found evidence of people marrying, people having further uh, issue or of dying. And we picked out 433 um, survivors. This startling figure meant that even though they had been trapped with the deadly pestilence for over a year, half of the village of Eme had pulled through. Scientists struggled to make sense of it. So many villagers survived that some have questioned whether it was in fact the plague that hit Eme in 1665. Could the black sores and raging thirst of the victims have had another sinister explanation? In Eme village in Derbyshire, stories have been passed down for centuries about the extraordinary resistance the people had to the world's most deadly disease, plague. But now there were question marks. Could it have been some other less virulent disease that hit this quiet rural community in 1665? There was one disease that showed remarkably similar symptoms to the plague, anthrax. Anthrax expert Tony Hart believes the two could easily have been confused. Anthrax is an infection that's transmitted from animals to man. It then produces a, a, a red lump which is very itchy and that red lump then graduates to becoming blisters and the blisters coalesce together to produce an ulcer and then on top of that there's a black scab, hence anthrax meaning black. Could it have been not fleas but anthrax spores that were delivered to the village tailor George Vickers in the parcel of cloth? Could the villagers have mistaken the two? Anthrax could have spread quickly on the farms of Derbyshire. Unlike plague, the anthrax blisters are rarely fatal to humans. If it had been anthrax that hit Eme, then the mystery of the high survival rate would be solved. There was only one way to put it to the test. Anthrax was deadly to sheep and cows, so they would have been wiped out. John Clifford scoured village records to see if any animals had survived. You find people leaving wills in which they refer to the way they wish to dispose of their livestock. And then if you look at their inventories, which were taken post-plague, and you find that they are listing considerable um, holdings of farm stock. If it was anthrax, then the, the, the earliest victims would have been the cattle. With no evidence of dead cattle, the anthrax theory had to be ruled out. The accounts of black swellings on the body, the fever and raging thirst of the victims, left no room for further doubt. It could only have been plague that hit Eme in 1665. In London, 
It was assumed that the squalor and overcrowding of the city streets played a role in the high death rate. Could the death rate have been lower in the countryside where living conditions were not so dense? Justin Champion has studied the records of the London Plague to see whether the cramped living conditions of the poor made them any more likely to succumb to the plague than their more affluent neighbours. We did that by using various computer techniques, relational databases, linking taxation records that gave us quite a precise description of the wealth of individual households throughout London and linking those to the burial registers. So we could, if you like, plot the incidence of death, both in terms of social status, but also in terms of space across London. So in, in one sense, we were making maps of death. The results showed that poverty, bad hygiene and overcrowding were irrelevant. Death hit everyone equally. Eames' rural location with its comparatively spacious living is unlikely to have halted the spread of plague. So what could explain the survival rate at Eames? Records showed not just cases of bizarre recovery. Some people never got sick at all, in spite of constant exposure to the plague bacteria. One such case was Elizabeth Hancock. The Hancocks lived on the edge of the village and had managed to escape the infection for some months. Then, in August 1666, the telltale boils appeared on the youngest Hancock boy, John. Within days, his sister Alice was stricken with the disease. Their mother Elizabeth nursed them, to no avail. One by one, Elizabeth dragged her children's bodies to their burial spot on the hill behind their home. In total, she buried six of her children and her husband in the space of one week. The graves of Elizabeth's children are still on the hillside outside Eam. Yet in spite of daily contact with the infectious bug, Elizabeth herself never contracted the plague. Even more extraordinary was the story of Marshal Howe. Howe was a chancer. He appointed himself village gravedigger and would visit the homes of the dying, helping himself to what valuables he could find before loading corpses onto his cart. Howe handled literally hundreds of infected corpses, but he survived the plague. Why did some people contract the disease and some not? Looking at those clusterings of death, people did survive that environment. And I think ultimately we have an imponderable question that our data throws up. Why did some survive? And ultimately I think we'd be forced into saying there was something biologically um, different about those groups that survived. Stephen O'Brien was curious to discover if there was indeed something biologically different about these people. That was what he had come to Eam to find out. One of the things that, that is very common about studying infectious disease in, in, in large populations is that different people have different outcomes. Not everybody gets sick or not everybody dies. And every disease is a little bit different. And the explanation for that is, 
is often assumed to be uh, uh, nutrition or environment or native immunity. But today we're beginning to discover that more and more of the differences in response, particularly to infectious disease, has to do with the genes the individuals carry around with them. O'Brien's hunch was that the survivors of Eme might have been protected by their genetic makeup. If they had, these genes might have been passed down through the generations. In the graveyard in Eme, the descendants of the survivors of the plague lie buried. The same names crop up again and again. The Hancocks, the Furnaces, the Blackwells. Joan Plant showed Stephen O'Brien the graves that linked her family back to the plague years. My maiden name is Harling, mm -hmm. and my mum's name was Furness. So my ancestors are Furness family, and they're just over here. This is one of my ancestors. These are your great-grandparents here. That's right. There's the Hancock grave, uh, Elizabeth Hancock and her husband, uh, Albert. And here are my uh, direct ancestors, George Furness and his wife, Emma. And uh, I am a descendant of the Furness family. My mum was a Furness and my grandparents. Uh, who were, yeah, both of these are my family graves. Well, the Eam population is a, is a fascinating opportunity to look at really what is a natural history experiment to understand the interaction between plague and genetic resistance. Virtually everyone was exposed to the plague bacillus and a very high fraction of them died as a consequence. The few survivors that emerged afterwards uh, intermarried and left a legacy, if you will, of descendants, and by looking at their genes, we're wondering whether we can discover the gene that caused resistance to that plague. The large number of descendants still living in Eme were gold dust for O'Brien. But in order to put his genetic theory to the test, he would first have to persuade the villagers to take part in an extraordinary experiment. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. 
Welcome back to Timeline Tapes. Let's rejoin our story, where scientists believe they might have found the piece to the genetic puzzle of Eam and the Black Death. The people of Eam village in Derbyshire had baffled historians and scientists by their uncanny resistance to the plague in 1665. Geneticist Stephen O'Brien decided to put the village under the microscope to find out whether the answer to this mystery could be found in the genes of their descendants. The villagers were asked to swab the inside of their cheeks to provide a sample of DNA, which could be analyzed to see whether there was any evidence of protective genes. There was one gene that O'Brien had hopes for. It was a mutant member of a family of genes that plays a key role in the body's defense against disease. It was called Delta 32. O'Brien wanted to test it to see if it might protect against the plague. EAM is a wonderful opportunity to do it because like a Xerox machine, their gene frequencies have been replicated for several generations without a lot of infusion from outside so that we can look at the descendants of the, of the bubonic plague survivors and simply question whether or not this uh, uh, Delta 32 mutation occurs in a remarkably high frequency. The DNA samples collected in EAM were sent to University College London for processing. If there was no gene present, it would blow O'Brien's theory out of the water. But if it showed up, the door would be open for an extraordinary new avenue of research, the possibility that genes protected some people from the plague. The samples were analyzed by a London team headed by Dr. David Goldstein. Let's imagine that in fact, the, the Delta 32 mutation does confer some resistance to the plague. But we know that Eam was hit very hard by the plague. If we now have today available descendants of, of, of that population, then if the Delta 32 mutation conferred uh, resistance, some resistance to the plague, then the descendants of this village should be enriched for that mutation because those individuals that had the mutation would be the ones that would have survived. The Eam experiment could only work if the villagers could prove they were direct descendants from the survivors of the plague. O'Brien met them to analyze their family trees. Well, what we're curious about is to see whether or not the record of the survivors of the plague has been handed down in your genes. Joan, you trace back here to the Blackwells. This is me here, and my mum and dad. It goes all the way back through the, the Barber family yep. to the Blackwells right the way through, and Thomas Barber married Hannah Blackwell, up to Robert Blackwell and Ruth Sellers, and right the way back to the survivors of the plague, Francis Blackwell and Margaret Blackwell. Margaret Blackwell's remarkable recovery from the plague was for centuries attributed to drinking bacon fat. But was there a more scientific explanation? John Hancock is a direct descendant of Elizabeth Hancock, whose husband and six of her children fell victim to the plague. No explanation has ever been given for why she alone managed to escape it. Could it have been genetic resistance? 
If it was a gene that protected the people of Eam from the plague, how could it keep out such a deadly disease? Dr. Rick Titball has been trying to find the answer to that question by exploring the way the plague bacteria attacks the cells of the human body. We know that for many microorganisms which cause disease, there's a very specific interaction between the microorganism and the host, a gateway that allows entry of the microorganism into host cells. When the plague bacteria gets into the blood, the body sends an army of white blood cells to destroy them. But plague outwits the immune system. It gets inside the white blood cells, the very cells sent to kill it, and hijacks them for its own ends. It uses them to hitch a ride to the lymph nodes, the center of the body's defense network. Here it breaks out and attacks the immune system, giving the victim little chance of survival. It was this takeover of the immune system that made plague so uniquely destructive. The theory was that a gene like Delta 32 might block the crucial gateway into the human cells, thereby blocking the plague bacteria from entering the body. Three weeks after the samples were collected at Eam, the first results were in there is clear evidence of Delta 32. So these are the eam traces that you've got up here, and that's 190. So how this works is that we focus in on a particular part of the gene, and, and here you see an individual with two copies of the Delta 32 mutation. Uh, with two copies. In total, the gene was present in 14% of the eam descendants. O'Brien's hunch had paid off. The Delta 32 gene was clearly visible in Eam. But what was the significance of 14%? And was it a legacy of the plague? The only way to find out was to compare the Eam results with other areas. O'Brien put together an international team of scientists to map the levels of the gene across the world. As the results began to trickle in, an extraordinary picture emerged. He looked at data from Africa, South America, and the Far East. There was no Delta 32. O'Brien sensed that he was onto something big. When you get a trail that you pick up, you sniff at it like a bloodhound, and as you get closer and closer, you can almost taste the answer that's coming out. And when we began to unravel the secrets behind Delta 32, we became convinced that there was an answer, and I really wanted to be the person that was there when we find out what happened. Completing his search for the gene worldwide, O'Brien made an exciting discovery. The levels of the gene found at Eam were only matched in other parts of Europe along the roots of the Black Death. Mutations like Delta 32 
are basically genetic mistakes which die out unless they give people a strong advantage in survival. For the levels of the gene to be as high as they were across Europe, that advantage must have been stunning. Well, by now we were absolutely convinced that Delta 32 was extremely unusual, that it had been risen in European ancestors to a very high frequency, very rapidly, and the only explanation that fit all the data was some sort of raging infectious disease outbreak, which could have killed off millions of people throughout the area where this event was taking place. O'Brien was now convinced that the raging infectious disease outbreak was the Black Death. The geography of Delta 32 matched the spread of the plague precisely. But one further piece of the jigsaw remained, the date. If O'Brien and Goldstein could pinpoint the exact date that the gene erupted so dramatically in Europe, then they could confirm whether it was caused by the plague. The work took months as they devised a mathematical formula. So I think we might be able to get an estimate of the age if we look at nearby markers and essentially see the nature of the association between the mutation and variation at nearby sites. I think that'll work. I'm just, I'm a little worried about the variance, but on the other hand, that would be that's going to give us some information. to time, yeah. That's absolutely right. It's going to have a connection to time. The basic... Uh, O'Brien and Goldstein analyzed the samples from O'Brien's worldwide database. They were able, by looking at minute differences between the genes, to back-calculate the date of the original mutation. They discovered that the gene exploded in the European population roughly 700 years ago, just at the time the Black Death came to Europe. The jigsaw was complete. The date was spot on. The mystery of those who had walked free from their plague-ridden homes now had an explanation. All the signs pointed to the mutant gene, Delta 32, to explain the mysterious mechanism that blocked the plague bacteria from entering the human cell. But there was a further puzzle. Many at Eme had totally resisted the plague. But if the gene did block out the plague bacteria, then why did some people get sick, only to stage a remarkable recovery? there was an intriguing explanation. Elizabeth Hancock had never contracted the plague, even though she was constantly exposed to infection. To completely block the lethal bacteria, she must have had two copies of the protective gene, one inherited from each of her parents. But what happened to people who had only inherited one copy of the gene? Margaret Blackwell actually contracted plague, but recovered. Could it be that she had just one copy of Delta 32, which enabled her to fight back and throw off the disease? It may be that individuals with one copy of Delta 32 actually postpone the onset of death. And in that meantime, the armament of the immune system, which has many different uh, battalions, if you will, could be mounting an immune response sufficient to clear out 
the, uh, uh, the bacterium so that the individual actually survives rather than dies. The evidence was now overwhelming that this tiny genetic mistake called Delta 32 protected generations of families from the plague. But there was to be an even more extraordinary twist in the story of Delta 32. What life-saving legacy did these European survivors pass on to their descendants? All the evidence showed that a rogue gene protected many of our European ancestors from the world's most deadly disease, plague. If it had, then the survivors would have passed down in their bloodline a unique ability to fight disease. Could this gene be helping us to fight new infections? There was one disease where scientists were beginning to see chilling parallels with the Black Death the modern-day scourge of AIDS. San Francisco, 1980. More gay people than ever before spilled out onto the streets to celebrate their lifestyle. People were no longer ashamed to be gay. It was a time of euphoria. Among the crowd was Steve Crone. There were more gay people, there were, uh, there were more people, because it was the baby boom generation, and we had more of an opportunity to express ourselves. Part of that was very much a sexual expression. So in that sense, it was hedonistic. We had music, we had disco, we had drugs, and we could dance all night and, and fuck all day. But doctors had already seen signs of a mysterious and shocking new disease that was affecting gay men. Dark purple blotches appeared on the skin. The lymph nodes swelled. Something sinister had arrived. Steve Crone was oblivious to the looming menace. For him and his circle of friends, the leisurely California afternoons need not be troubled by some obscure disease. Then his lover, Jerry, got sick. No one knew what it was. And it was an emotional nightmare because he was sick for 15 months and there was never a diagnosis. So you had somebody who was, um, who went blind, who w lost 30 pounds in weight, who had uh, cytomegalovirus in their liver, who had all kinds of uh, horrific kinds of tests. So there was a, a mystery of suddenly this person went from being 34 years old and totally vital and a gymnast and handsome and healthy and, and then was suddenly like living with an 85-year-old man. You just keep maintaining this positive picture of them as a healthy person until you finally turn a corner and to be honest, I actually was an astrologist who told me he was going to die. I was never a doctor. Jerry died on March the 4th, 1982. He was the fifth person in America to die of what was to become known as AIDS. Gay San Francisco continued to party, blissfully unaware that the disease was spread by a lethal virus. Crone watched in horror as it swept relentlessly through his circle of friends. 
you can't really process that many people dying all the time. So if you're going to a funeral, you know, if somebody's dying every month or every every year, there maybe I would have lost over the course of that decade, I lost about 70 to 80 people. So you're talking about a lot of funerals and a lot of memorials, and there was really nobody left. Over the last two decades, there have been 18 million deaths from AIDS worldwide. The culprit, the HIV virus, has become the biggest killer in the Western world since the Black Death. Like the plague, AIDS devastated the immune system. But like plague, there was a mystery. Some people seemed better able to resist the virus than others. O'Brien was fascinated by the parallels. Comparing the two diseases, O'Brien discovered that the HIV virus was tricking the immune system just like the plague. It was targeting exactly the same white blood cells, the very cells sent to destroy it and hijacking them. Once inside the cell, the virus could totally wipe out the body's immune response. The bacteria that causes plague specifically target precisely the same cells that HIV enters. So those connections are indirect, but they're very much similar to finding two very, very similar kinds of murders occurring in a very small town in Pennsylvania at the same time, and us wondering whether or not the same person committed the murder. The murder mystery might have remained unsolved if it were not for Steve Crone. Stunned by the loss of his lover and all his close friends, Crone had assumed that it would only be a matter of time before he himself developed the disease. His lifestyle had been no different from theirs. Why should he be special? The only other experience you could find where all of your friends are dying around you of the same age would be if you were in the war and your platoon is wiped out. The thought was that I would eventually get AIDS and die. But remarkably, Crone did not get AIDS. Test after test showed the same result, negative for HIV. I was mentioning this question of how was I to a family relative at some party, and they said, well, why don't they test you then? They study other children when you find that everybody in the family has a disease, and this one child doesn't get the disease. Why don't they study that child? Why aren't they doing that with you? And I thought, Gee, that sounds, makes sense. Why aren't they studying me? So it just sort of inspired me to make another round of phone calls to doctors and see if there were any trials out there. And there weren't. I really did a lot of phone work. There weren't any trials, because there are numbers you can call HIV trial. There was nobody studying HIV-negative men. And so until I found uh, Bill Paxton. Young, switched on, and determined to make his mark on the AIDS story, Paxton persuaded his lab chief at the Aaron Diamond AIDS Research Center in New York to let him try a new experiment. His idea was to analyze the blood of people who were very high risk for HIV, but had never caught the disease, to see if it could give any clues to how the virus worked. He was looking for blood from people like Steve. The centre had no study of people who were exposed to HIV but who had remained negative. Being in New York, 
you knew those people were there. I mean, you met those people. Paxton took a sample from Crohn's blood and bombarded it with HIV virus. 3,000 times the normal amount of HIV needed to infect a cell. An amazing thing happened. In spite of the massive dose of HIV, Steve's cells did not become infected. Uh, red colors in the well indicate the amount of viral activity. And as you see, as you go across here, these individuals have a viral production. And then you come to Steve's cells, his white blood cells, and you see there's no red. Those wells stay white, suggesting there's no viral replication. Paxton assumed he had made a mistake. We thought maybe we'd infected the culture with bacteria or whatever, so we went back to Steve. But again, it was the same result. We went back again, again, same result. Something was blocking the virus from getting into Steve's cells. But what was it? If Paxton could find out, then he would have solved the biggest mystery of AIDS, why some people were resistant to the disease. Looking at the DNA, Paxton instantly saw something striking. Unlike people who were infected with HIV, Steve's cells had a blocking mechanism. The virus simply couldn't enter the cell. Further tests confirmed that this was caused by a mutant gene. It was Delta 32. There was now a cast iron explanation for the fact that Crohn had never caught HIV. It wasn't just luck. It was the mutant gene Delta 32 which had been passed down to him by his European ancestors. I took it in a very uh, cautious manner, but it was also very exciting to be able to tell my family I may never be able to catch AIDS. That was, the, that was like the first reaction, I think, for myself. Really to tell my nieces and nephews and my sisters that they would not have to go through what I saw so many other families go through. I think that was the greatest bonus. O'Brien was quick to pick up the baton. He analyzed his own database of Delta 32 and found results which stunned the scientific community. All the people with one copy of Delta 32, one-fifth of the population, showed a delay in developing AIDS if they were infected with HIV. But the data shows that 1% of people in Britain and America, almost 3 million people, have two copies of the gene, like Steve Crone, giving them virtually total resistance to AIDS. And the explanation was really quite simple. These people did not have the entry portal for HIV to get in, and therefore, even if they were exposed over and over, they did not become infected. And this was the first genetic restriction that had been discovered against an infectious disease in humans, and it was a, it was a whopper. In unraveling the mystery of the plague survivors, O'Brien had solved an even bigger puzzle. It was clear that the survivors of plague-stricken Europe had passed on a stunning legacy to their descendants protection from the most feared killer of our time, AIDS. Understanding the role of Delta 32 in protecting the body against the AIDS virus 
has opened up a whole new avenue of research into developing possible preventative cures. O'Brien's genetic detective work had paid off. Thanks for listening to Timeline Tapes. That's it for our journey into the riddle of the English village that survived the Black Death. Be sure to join us next week when we take a look back on the most shocking story from the Gulf War, meeting the RAF pilots who were captured as prisoners in Iraq during Operation Desert Storm. In the meantime, if you can't wait to learn more, just head to our YouTube, where we have hundreds of documentaries you can watch. If you want to reach out to Timeline Tapes, you can email us at timeline at little.studios.com, and you can also follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Those are both at TimelineWH. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, give us a five-star rating, and write a review, too. I've been Nate Fisher. This has been Timeline Tapes. Let's go down in history together. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.